anyone would come back after last week's sermon. Uh, but here you are for round two of Hosea. Uh, I'm going to be reading a, a selection of oracles uh, from the book of Hosea. You can find the particulars in your bulletin, but uh, hear the word of God as I read. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall, she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Then in chapter 7, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gnash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devised evil against me. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of their insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And in chapter 10. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord. That he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And in chapter 12. A merchant whose hands in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. And in chapter 13, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their hearts, their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. And finally, in chapter 14, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would speak to us this day through your eternal word. We pray that your word would fly true and find its mark. And we pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So this is the second week in a three-week series of sermons on the book of Hosea. This Old Testament book of prophecies contains a number of oracles from God to the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century before Christ. God says that he has a controversy with Israel, that he has a beef with the northern kingdom, and his complaint is that the people are faithless, that they are disloyal, that they are chasing after false gods and forming alliances with pagan kingdoms. He accuses them of religious promiscuity and spiritual whoredom. And to drive this point home in a graphic and and in a memorable way, God tells the prophet in the northern kingdom, Hosea son of Beeri, quote, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's chapter 1, verse 2. So poor Hosea marries Gomer, and Gomer doesn't spend much time at home. She's always running after her lovers who provide her with bread and wine and barley and oil and silver and gold. This strange marriage of Gomer the prostitute and Homer and Hosea the prophet is a living parable of the relationship between the faithless kingdom of Israel and the ever-faithful Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the marital infidelity of Gomer and the religious faithlessness of Israel have the same root. In both cases, it is the love of money. After John 3.16, perhaps the most famous passage in the Bible is 1 Timothy 6.10. Although I bet that none of you know it by chapter and verse. In the King James Version it reads, For the love of money is the root of all evil. How many times did my father quote that verse to me, usually in connection with a discussion around my allowance, but my father might just as well have quoted Ezekiel or Ecclesiastes 5.10, which says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Or Hebrews 13.5, which says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, have a lot to say about our relationship with money. It's full of warnings about loving money. In Colossians 3.5, the Apostle Paul goes so far as to equate the love of money with the greatest of all sins, which is the sin of idolatry. He writes, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, des- evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, that might seem like a big jump. Sure, covetousness and greed are not good. But to say that they're the same thing as idolatry? That is the sin of all sins. That is the violation of the first commandment. That's the highest sin, the mother of all sins. And the punishment required in the law of Moses for idolatry is death. Could the love of money really be all that bad? I mean, don't we all love money? In the book of Hosea, 
in both the oracles spoken against the kingdom of Israel and the living parable of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful woman, the root of the infidelity is a love of money. And God is unhappy. He's unhappy with the northern kingdom so much that he promises to destroy her. Which is exactly what happens in the year 722 B.C. when the Assyrian Empire invades and never again does that territory enjoy independence until the creation of the state of Israel in 1947. So, yes... The love of money is a big deal. It is serious business. The love of money is bad because the love of money is dangerous. It is a dangerous source of spiritual infidelity because the love of money can twist our hearts in unholy ways. There are a lot of ways to be unfaithful. Gomer, Hosea's wife, God's image for the kingdom of Israel, Gomer goes chasing after lovers. Now, you might think she's chasing after lovers because she wants love or because she wants sex or because she wants affirmation or because she wants excitement or because she wants an escape. But when God lays out his controversy with Gomer, Israel, when God lays out his legal case against her, what we see is that the root of the infidelity is money. Or the desire for the things that money can buy. Money, the love of money is the root of all evil, 1 Timothy 6.10 says. Because money is a powerful inducement to infidelity. Because the love of money can twist our hearts in unholy ways. Now, let's listen to uh, the series of oracles. We read pieces from a number of different oracles. These oracles would have been delivered to the prophet over the course of time. They are collected together in this book, and we read several different ones, but many of them have the same theme. Listen to the ways in which God in these oracles indicts the people of Israel for their wrong relationship with money. First, in Hosea 2.5, the faithless woman says, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and wine, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. The unfaithful Gomer pursues her lovers not because she longs for them, not because she loves them, but because she loves what they can give to her. She loves what money can buy. Second, in Hosea 12.7 and 8, we hear this report. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they can find in me no impiety or sin. In this oracle, we have the image of a dishonest merchant who, through dishonest practices, the false balances, oppresses the poor... And gains wealth for himself. And Ephraim, that's just another name for the northern kingdom. Ephraim is so proud of himself for his self-made wealth. For the fact that no one can convict him of any violation of the law. People of Israel, of course, are people of the law. The law was God's covenant, his agreement with these people. And God promises to prosper his people if they follow the law. 
But God's law requires complete fairness in all business practices. That's for the protection of the poor and the powerless. And here this crooked merchant, here this Ephraim, brags that he's rich and self-made and that no one can catch him in a violation of the law. Well, maybe that's because he's all lawyered up. Maybe that's because he has followed the letter but not the spirit of the law. And to add insult to injury, he imagines that his prosperity has come from his sharp business practices rather than from the generosity of God. And third, in Hosea 7.14, we see Israel's unfaithful reaction to God's chastisement. There are times... When God withdraws his favor from his people to chastise them for their waywardness. To actually draw them back to himself. A little rebuke. And the hope is that the people will return to God and again seek his favor. But here's what we read in Hosea 7.14. They do not cry to me from their heart. But they wail upon their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Two things to notice. First, they're crying. What they're crying about is not God's disfavor. What they're crying about is not God's coldness or absence. They don't miss God. What they're crying about is the bread and the wine. They don't love God, but they love the stuff that he provides. God is just a means to an end for them. He is the supernatural ATM which dispenses cash when they push the right buttons. And second, they gash themselves. This is a reference to the kind of praying that the devotees of Baal practice. You'll remember Elijah's big showdown. With the priests of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, the priests of Baal offer their sacrifice on an altar and they pray that God will send, that their God will send down fire onto the altar. And when he doesn't do it, they whip themselves up into a frenzy and they begin to cut themselves. It's a way of getting God's attention. The only thing the Israelites are interested in is the grain and the wine. But rather than asking God for those things, they cut themselves to attract the attention of Baal, the pagan fertility god who has promised them big harvests. Israel's heart is in the wrong place. Gomer's heart is in the wrong place. Israel doesn't love God. He loves the stuff that God gives. Israel loves the gift and not the giver. Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Israel and Gomer gave their hearts to false gods and false lovers because their treasure was not God or the husband, but rather the stuff that God or the husband are expected to provide. Israel doesn't love Yahweh. Israel loves wealth. And so when Baal promises wealth, Israel gives his heart to Baal. Gomer doesn't love Hosea. Gomer loves wealth. And so when the other lovers promise wealth, Gomer gives her heart and her body to her lovers. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Hosea 2 verse 5, we read, Gomer said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread 
and my water, who give me my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Faithless Gomer has been motivated by the good things in life. And so she goes off after lovers who pay her with the things that she wants. But then God, who is the husband in this image, employs a strategy of his own. We read in verse 6 of chapter 2, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her, so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall... She shall... Seek them. This is a tongue twister, right? She, see, she shall seek them. <laughs> I challenge you to do it yourself. All right, then you can preach next week. But shall not find them. All right? This wandering, faithless wife who has no hesitation to run off with other lovers to get the things that she wants, God determines to fence her in, to hedge her. And so she can't go wandering. Or if she does go wandering, so that she can't find her ways to her lovers who provide her with all these good things. But then we hear her reaction of being thwarted in this way. She says, I will go and return to my first husband, who is God, for it was better for me then than now. Now, at one level, this kind of reminds me of the prodigal son, which we read about In Luke chapter 15, Jesus' story of the prodigal son. The prodigal is living off in a far country. He spent all of his inheritance on fast living and loose women. And then a famine hits that country and he's starving to death. And at that point he wakes up and he says, I'm going to return to my father for it would be better for me to be his servant than to suffer in this way. Gomer only returns to her husband and the prodigal only returns to the father because they want what the husband and the father can provide. Gomer doesn't say, I'll return to my husband because I love him. She doesn't say, I'll return to my husband because that's the right thing to do. She says, I'll return to my husband because it was better for me than than now. Her motives are entirely selfish. And so with the prodigal. The prodigal doesn't return to his father because he loves the father or because he thinks it's the right thing to do. The prodigal returns to his father because he loves what his father can offer. Food and drink in the midst of a famine. It's something to think about. The next thing to notice is that the faithless wife or faithless Israel is actually confused about the source of of their wealth and blessing. While Gomer thinks that her lovers and her Baal worship are responsible for her prosperity, in fact it is God who has given everything to her. We read in verse 8, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. God's complaint is against a people who imagine that their lovers, their false gods, have caused them to prosper. God's complaint is against a people who imagine that their own sharp business practices, their false scales, have caused them to prosper. The big confusion is in not recognizing that Almighty God is the source of all of our wealth. Not ourselves. 
Not the idols that we worship. And yes, we do have modern versions of Baal worship. It is God who has provided us with what we have. So let me close with a word of caution and with a word of encouragement. First, a word of caution. The love of money is not the same thing as the gift for making money. Let me say that again because I want you to understand this. The love of money is not the same thing as the gift for making money. Without a doubt, the Bible has a lot of warnings about the dangers of money. Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. In the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 5, Jesus says that sometimes the seed of the word of God can take root in someone's life. But then, he says, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the weed. Or choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. That's Mark 4.19. So yes, there are dangers in being wealthy, but the love of money is not the same thing as the gift for making money. And if someone loves God and obeys God's law, it is entirely possible that God will give him the gift of making money. Because God can use that wealth to build his own kingdom. In 1850... Shortly before Christmas, a 12-year-old Philadelphia boy named John Wanamaker walked into a jewelry shop to buy a gift for his mother. And as the shopkeeper was wrapping up the gift, the boy saw something else that he wanted instead. But the shopkeeper said, oh, it's too late. You've already bought this and sent him on his way. And it was that day that this young John Wanamaker made the vow that someday he would own a store and treat his customers fairly, which is what he did. He founded a store based upon a couple of principles of fair play. Number one, a customer could always return uh, a purchase within 10 days and get their money back, which was a very unusual practice at the time, or they could return it for an exchange within 14 days. Also, the price of goods was posted on the item to be purchased. This was a new thing in the United States, that, that things would have prices on them, and there weren't any dickerings about the cost or secret prices for favored customers. Customers appreciated Wanamaker's fairness and he grew wealthy. And he poured his money into the work of the church. Countless Presbyterian churches in Philadelphia have been endowed by Wanamaker money. Legend has it, but I have yet to confirm it. And I'm hoping that Dan Bramer's wife will be able to dig to the bottom of this mystery. But the legend has it that our first communion table was given to this congregation by John Wanamaker. We certainly know from the records that he attended the prayer meetings that were involved in the formation of this church back in 1861. In 1875, Wanamaker single-handedly funded Dwight L. Moody coming uh, to Philadelphia and holding a series of of evangelistic meetings. One million people went to see Moody here in Philadelphia because of Wanamaker money. When I was in seminary, One of my internships was at Olivet Covenant Church down in Philadelphia. It was paid for by something called the Summer Evangelistic Committee. That was an organization that Wanamaker had established and funded more than a 100 years ago. 
Though his department store has been sold to some out-of-town company and no longer bears his name, his legacy of giving goes on nearly a 100 years after he died. John Wanamaker didn't love money. He loved God. He loved doing the right thing. And God gave him the gift for making money, a lot of money. Those who abide by the law of God will prosper. And God will build his kingdom through the resources of godly people. At 12.30, we're going to have a congregational meeting here in this sanctuary. The session will be presenting the church's operating budget for the coming year, for 2018. As long as I've been at this church, we have had a balanced budget year after year. We have always spent less than we have budgeted. This is a very fiscally conservative congregation. We never outspend our income. But at our last session meeting uh, last week, I brought a new proposal to the session regarding the reserve funds of the church. That is money that does not appear on our budget because it isn't used for day-to-day operations. Through the years, people have named this church in their wills, and all or part of their estates have come to the church upon their death. In my time with you, we have received substantial bequests from Evelyn Buzko, Irene Marchetti, Evelyn Gerling, Grace Beale, Helen McAdams, Virginia Steck, and Catherine Kinegi. These are people who loved and appreciated this congregation and wanted to see the ministry of this church outlive themselves. They wanted to see this church bless new generations of people. Our reserve funds who have come to us from those people are used in two ways. First, they generate income, which does go into our day-to-day operations. And second, they act as a rainy day fund for capital projects at the church, for large projects that are not budgeted in our operating budget. For example, this past year, the school came to us, and they asked the session uh, to air condition part of the building so that it would be more useful in the hot months. And so the session considered this and they decided to air condition the Boyer uh, Fellowship Hall and to air condition the lounge. And the money for that project, which came to about $40,000, I believe, came out of these reserve funds. The proposal that I brought to the session last week was that the session commit to growing the reserve fund by 2.5% in the coming year. In the past, the session has had no policy regarding these reserves, but I felt that we are being called to carefully steward our reserves to increase it by a modest amount this year so that the legacy of those people who have given in the past will continue to produce fruit in this congregation in the the future. Now let me close with a word of encouragement. If we recognize and honor God, as the source of our wine and grain and silver and gold, we will never lack for good things. Hypothetically and theoretically, we all recognize that God is the source of all good things in life. We recognize that he is the source of our health and our wealth, of our sanity and of our happiness. But practically, we can sometimes act as if we or the world or good luck are the source of good things. And there's a danger in that. As we trust God with our daily resources, 
And yes, we are supposed to pray for our daily bread. As we trust God for our daily resources, God will meet our needs day by day. And by trusting God in that way, daily, our relationship with Him will sweeten and it will grow deeper. As we trust Him more, as we feel more freedom with our resources to be generous with other people who have less than we do. God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. God has promised to provide for us everything that we need for this life. So let us not be like Gomer, chasing after false lovers, falling in love with stuff that they can give. Let us instead love God earnestly and faithfully to love and love Him alone, trusting Him to provide us with all that we need. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let us pray. Father God, we do honor you and adore you, and we thank you for the ways in which you do pour yourself and your blessings into our lives and into this congregation. We thank you for the ways that you sustain us day by day and week by week. And Lord, I pray that as we look at and use the wealth that we have, that we might recognize that it has come from your hands. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't love the money that you give us, but that we would love you. Lord, I do pray that you would give us the gift of making money, even while you prevent us from loving that money more than we love you. You alone are worthy of our time and our attention. You alone are worthy of our money. And so we honor you this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.